Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine will be joined by Zach Sherwin, who is a comedian, the host of The Crossword Show, and a longtime vegan. He is also my brother. Not really. <laughs> Why did you but- say that? Because it, it, it'll become evident when you hear the interview, but like we're, we have, we have so many parallels and we have the same graying pattern in our hair and we're like basically the same age and both grew up in the same kinds of families. These are possibly topics that are of interest only to you and Zach. (laughs) (laughs) So Zach is a friend of, we have a mutual friend, Mike Kaplan, the comedian, who is on tour right now for people who want to see a funny vegan comedian because everyone needs to laugh right now. And he put me in touch with Zach, who's a longtime vegan. We've been vegan about the same amount of time because we are related. And I just love his brain. Like I loved talking to him about issues because he's not like an activist in the same way that a lot of our guests are. He's more of like a, you know, a vegan who's an anti-racist activist and who is just very socially aware in which is imbued in his work. It is a very different perspective. And I've heard already from the Our Hen House team how much they, because they listened before everyone else, how much they loved this interview. So I, I loved it too. He was just so likable. I ge- I know I say this sometimes, but I genuinely forgot we were recording. And t- I was like, oh, we're rec- I forgot we're doing an interview. So super excited about this. I don't know whether that's a plus or a minus, but I'm sure Zach is great. He is. So let's talk about the week. There's a lot of things going on. Let's talk about something that's not very happy. Oh, yeah. Well, the big news in animal law remains the fact that uh, Happy the Elephant was uh, not successful in her attempt to to get a habeas corpus in, in the Court of Appeals, which is the highest state court in New York State. You know, a disappointing decision at the same time, two terrific dissents. Which really, you know, remarkable, remarkable descents. I, I just wanted to mention also, last week we had Cherry Kolb and Michael Dorf on to talk about a different issue, but they will be on the next Animal Law podcast. Not the interview, but just uh, they, they offered to come on to just start off the episode talking a bit about, about the decision and its implications. But then the interview will also be something I think people will be fascinated by. Uh, it's with Jessica Rubin, who is a professor and dean at the University of Connecticut Law School. And she's going to be talking about the program they have there, a very innovative program to train law students to go into court on cruelty cases and be advocates for animals. Because, you know, animals go into into court, these cases go into court, and there's nobody speaking on behalf of the victim. So, so a really interesting and successful program, and that will be going up um, on June 29th. So I hope everybody will give a listen. Definitely. And you'll have, you'll have to tell us about it afterwards as well. You you have also recently had a speaking engagement. Uh, how did that go? Oh, right. Yes. So this is for the Compassionate Consortium. And by the way, I have to tell you, this is like a uh, non-denominational spiritual... I'm going to say church with giant air quotes because it's non-denominational. It doesn't feel churchy, but it's a spiritual gathering that happens a couple times a month. And I have known about it because our friend Victoria Moran is one of the founders of it. This was my first time going, which was an honor because I got to be the speaker. But I have to tell you, I I loved it. Like, I definitely am going to go back. Like, I, I felt like 
oh, these are my people. These are really interesting, thoughtful discussions. I looked at their lineup. So I was able to speak. Interesting, because you are not generally a huge fan of the whole God thing. It wasn't gaudy. <laughs> it was it wasn't gaudy or gaudy. It it was just spiritual. And and I feel like I'm a pretty spiritual person for an atheist. And and it really draws on, you know, people who are Catholic, Jewish, atheists, witches, pagans, just people who identify as spiritual, agnostic, whatever. And they come together to discuss issues that I would say are pretty social justice oriented and it's not everyone is vegan and and there's a lot of talks about veganism and I like that too. So I was able to speak about the overlaps between LGBTQ issues and animal rights for me personally. By the time this airs, I will have also published a, tra- a partial transcript of that on my Substack, which is my newsletter, which is jasminesinger.substack Dot com And it's no E on Jasmine. So if people are interested in that topic, you could see it there. I believe they also recorded it. So maybe we'll be able to embed the video somewhere as well. And I had a, I had a great time. You know, I meant to tell you, I, I mentioned that poster that you had in your office at the appellate court that I think was a very old ALDF uh, ad maybe. And it was all these cute little animals. And it said, because the animals need a good lawyer, ALDF. Is that is that what it was? Do you remember? No, you're mi- you're totally mixing up two things. I had a poster, an old poster, which I loved from ALDF, which was just a picture, I think a picture of a dog. And it said, we're the only lawyers whose clients are all innocent. Oh, right. And then the other thing is a beautiful little drawing, which I have a print of by Sue Ko. It has a whole, just a whole bunch of animals in various situations. And, and um, that's the one that said something along the lines of the animals need a good lawyer. Yeah. Two of my favorite things. I have since lost that ALDF poster. I wonder what happened to it. That was such a good poster. Maybe we could find one for you on eBay or something. But I did mention that I was probably messing it up. And I, and I was using it as a way to sort of draw some connections between you know, people who historically have not been able to fight for themselves and did need a good lawyer and animals who, of course, need a good lawyer because they can't fight for themselves. So it went well. I, I I especially loved our interview last week with Christopher Sebastian. He got into the issues so much more eloquently than me. Like I kept saying that during the talk, like just stop, just leave and listen to that podcast. Why are you listening to me? Go listen to Christopher. So Anyway, by the way, you're banging again. Like you're making the banging noise. I'm sorry. Well, we were going to talk to you. Like, maybe I we should a, talk I about a, it. Yeah. Well, maybe banger. somebody will have a solution. I am I am a foot, um, you know, Tapper. like jitterer. Well, I, I always have been. And I'm starting to accept, always will be, but you have not accepted it. I haven't accepted it about you because it's annoying. <laughs> but I have like these busy toys that Isn't I that a little bit more about you. I constantly am playing with these busy toys. Like they're they're like for I don't know neuro neuro uh, divergent people, and I love them. They help me a lot when I feel antsy. I'm constantly playing with something when I'm like interviewing people. So maybe we need to get you that. I also have this new ball to play with with my foot. I'm playing with it right now that you could get one of these balls too. It's like almost a massage ball for your foot. Oh, I think I might have something like that somewhere. I'll try it. But I just like to shake my leg. That's what I like to do. If you get a ball, your cats will be like, yes, 
Yeah, they'll just steal it. <laughs> That's it's true. So rude. Okay, so we mentioned a few of the things going on in the world, some other things going on in the world. It's hot, 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 like not in a funny way or a fun way. It's like really fucking hot. It is something I thought we should talk about because I think there's a lot of stuff going on. And at least at the point we're recording this, we're still wending our way through these horrific heat waves. I mean, started in India uh, a little while ago. Europe, just crazy, crazy temperatures, especially Spain, but also France, uh, other places, the Western US, and, you know, creeping over to the Eastern US. But I have to say, we have been spared to some extent, but it's just so scary. I mean, animals are dying, a whole bunch of penguins washed up in, in South America. Thousands of cattle have died in Kansas. Of course, the articles talk about the great loss to the meat industry. Don't talk about the fact that keeping cattle causes climate change. And and one thing that occurred to me, we, we mentioned the Farmer John Slaughterhouse in Los Angeles closing last week. And also, I think I mentioned also that the Circle Four Farms, which is a farm's unbelievable what they call it, the huge, huge, huge factory farm in Utah that belongs to Smithfield is closing. And we were all like, what the hell is going on? And, uh, you know, clearly what's going on is that they're just ahead of the game about how bad the weather is getting and how they can't do this in the desert anymore. They got to move someplace where there's some water. So let's hope that they they don't just move all their operations, but they actually close down some of their operations and and maybe like, you know, start making something better, like like cultured meat, which I understand companies have cultured meat ready to go. It is ready to move out the door and all they have to do is get FDA and USDA approval. So so fingers crossed on that. Well, and speaking of speaking of your cats and mine, someone Keisha Jerome from Evolotus commented today on a flock post saying that like the cat treats are just about there. Tell your cats, Marianne and everyone. Because Animals, that's the name of the company. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait. They are made from um, mice cells, these cat treats. Yeah, and then and then one of the employees adopted the mice. Adopted the mice, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, there's just too much going on in the world. I'm having a really, that's why my leg is shaking. I'm having a lot of trouble dealing with it. I've been watching the hearings. I'm sure a lot of you have as well. And it's really interesting. I mean, fascinating. Like they've been really good, but at the same time, it just makes you think about it all the time of how close we came, how close we could come, how fucking bad so many people are. I mean, that's like the only conclusion I can come to. I know that's a dark, dark conclusion, but geez, geez, it's, why do we elect? Like, it's like we, we elect the worst people. Like, I know all these nice people. I would be happy to put them in charge. And we elect the worst possible people. There's just something wrong with that story. I don't know what I was thinking, but I went on to Fox News today on the, uh, you know, online to read their headlines. Because I, I, I haven't done that in like, I don't know, maybe a year. Every now and what, then I crazy? used to go on and just see what they're reporting. Totally masochistic of me. And I don't really want to get into it, but no, it really freaked it. me out. Like so it's it's just like it's just like a different a different universe and it is fascinating. Uh so I guess like the point of the story is take care of each other, take care of yourself. And I, I really mean that. Like not I don't mean that as like a platitude or a talking point or a hashtag. But I mean it, like do it, take care of each other, take care of yourself and 
and try and remember to create some joy here and there, even though. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times we'd really talk about hope and how hard it is to find. And and I saw this tweet that I thought I would mention because I really liked it because I just find like if I start searching for hope sometimes and can't find it, I'm worse off than when I start. This is from Dr. Charlie Gardner. I don't usually care whether you're filled with hope or doom laden, only whether you are active or passive. I, I really like that. So when you really get down, do something, do something good that you think could change the world. And Burger King is doing something good. How, that's that's a little bit of a surprise. I love this story. This is, this is reported in several places, but as reported by the Economist, Burger King opens to meet free locations in Switzerland. I, I mean, know. like I if anyone read my if if anyone read my uh, memoir, then you'll know Burger King was my first love. Like it it I had a very very close relationship with Burger King and it had everything. It had the wooing. It had the like secret kind of intimate experiences in the shadowy part of the parking lot. It had the like addiction factor. Like I loved Burger King. And so when, when like the non-vegan, when the egregiously non-vegan parts of our previous life become vegan, it's just interesting and cool. And I am so excited about this. Like I love the photo. Well, I'm excited for the Swiss. I would like I would like a few of these outfits around here, I have to admit. But yeah, that like it's just so weird. Like they tell us that I'm always reading these stories that the alt meat world is not succeeding and it, you know, it had a really good beginning and it's not doing well. At the same time, Burger King's opening meat free locations and they seem to be terrified of of or at least the meat industry seems to be terrified. So like, are we monsters that are like taking over the world from the point of view of the meat industry or are we pathetic little uh, losers? They can't seem to make up their minds, but I think this story indicates that we're taking over the world. I'm down with that. I'll let that give me hope or at least as as Dr. Charlie Gardner would say, I'll let that allow me to be active and not passive. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that's cool. Uh, that's really cool. So there's been like a mix of stories that we've discussed today. And I think the point is that things are shitty and things aren't shitty. And most things are <laughs> shitty, but some things aren't. Well, that really ties it all together. Thanks. Masterful job at bringing it all together. I appreciate I, it. Before we go further down this road, let's get to the interview. Oh, okay. I Thank you for saving me. Why don't you introduce Zach? Yes. And I'm glad we have somebody funny. Because we could all use it. Zach Sherwin is. Oh, I thought you were like. I thought you were like. I'm glad we have somebody funny because you're sure as hell not. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why would you assume I would say something so mean? (laughs) Go ahead. You obviously think you're hilarious. I think I'm so funny. Zach Sherwin is a Los Angeles-based comedian. He's an actual comedian. He's actually funny. And the creator and host of The Crossword Show, in which a celebrity guest panel solves a crossword puzzle live on stage in front of an audience. He has also written for lots of other comedy shows and done lots of solo comedy work. But we are particularly interested in his passionate veganism and his excellent video series on the saga of Brutus the Duck. He will be joining Jasmine right after this. Animals need you, and you need data. Did you know that 41% of people who experience animal advocacy say it influences them to eat fewer animal products? Or that 
42% of people's vegan or vegetarian journeys are motivated by health. At Faunalytics, the mission is to empower animal advocates with research, analysis, strategies, and messages that maximize their effectiveness to reduce animal suffering. They conduct essential research, maintain the largest free online research library of studies on animals and advocacy, and directly support animal advocates like you in your work to save animals' lives. Sign up for Faunalytics weekly email alerts to stay in the know about the latest research that can support your animal advocacy. Visit faunalytics.org forward slash sign up. That's F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot org forward slash sign up to get signed up today. Welcome to our hen house, Zach. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited too, partly because I have quickly become a big fan of your work and partly because we have the same graying pattern in our hair. (laughs) Um, Thank you for being a fan of my work and thank you for lining up so squarely with me on the gray pattern. It's definitely coming in at the temples and um, the beard is, it's unmistakable at this point. I uh, waxed my face this morning, so I don't know if my beard is still gray, (laughs) but I'm just going to assume you're what I would look like if I had an entire face of facial hair. Totally. It's like woolly willy. Did did you have that toy when you were little with the little metal shavings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is me. I am your woolly willy. Well, thank you so much for coming on our henhouse, and I think that's it. I think we've finished our talk. (laughs) (laughs) We covered it all. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think we're good. Okay, I have a lot to talk to you about. And firstly, I know that you have been vegan for a long time. And I would love to start by hearing how it relates to your comedy. Because we all know that vegans aren't necessarily beloved to everyone. I think we have been rated higher on people's hate lists than serial killers. And that we're all humorless. I'm also a lesbian, So I'm really, really unfunny. I'm just wondering how you handle it. Do you bring it up at all in your work? Mm -hmm. So much here. Um, First, I'll say how nice it is to be in a space where I know that the host is vegan and that everybody listening is vegan, in part because you do have to do all this damage control when people find out about it. So yeah, I have been vegan and vegetarian for a long time. I come from a line of my grandmother was vegetarian like before there were any products whatsoever. So she's like old school vegetarian or was. She is deceased. My mom has been a vegetarian for a long time, decades and decades and decades. And then, yeah, I was vegetarian until I was like 21. And then I went vegan and I'm about to turn 42 in a couple weeks. So I used to do a joke where I would say it's been about 13 years since I barred meat from my diet. So I call it my bar mitzvah. And puns (laughs) plus veganism, man, now you are really asking for it. (laughs) I think that my answer to your question about how it ties into my comedy is that, first of all, I just think ambiently, if you do anything for 20 years, like my, I've been vegan longer than I've been doing comedy. So it's just going to inform, I think, a lot of choices that you make and like not. Um, super obvious ways. 
And then I have at times tried to do material about being vegan explicitly and to take it on. I used to do a joke about how people would always tell me that they would go vegan, but they couldn't give up cheese. And I would say like, well, you'd think with all that calcium you're getting, you'd have a little more backbone. But, um, and so like (laughs) people who were okay to laugh, you know, would be okay with it. But a lot of people would just kind of shut down. And that's so funny that vegans are like, we all know killing is bad. Is that really true about serial killers? Vegans being rated as more loathsome? I think so. Yeah. I think, I think that I've read that in a few places and I believe that people hate us more. Yeah. That's like a deep truth about some ugly aspect of human nature that like serial non-killers are more reprehensible than serial serial killers. You know, the way I try and do it nowadays, like I've written some songs that touch on it or like, you know, I've written songs like celebrating vegetables and that kind of thing in my weirder, wackier rangings. But the way I'll do it now is... I'll like show a picture of a dog during like one of my shows, like a cute dog and people will go, oh, you know, and there's like all this animal love. And I'll just quickly say like with a smile on like my face, like if you think that dog is super cute and you eat meat, you might want to rethink some of your choices. Moving on to our next, (laughs) you know, and so I just try and sneak it in a little bit. But yeah, it's definitely like a, a fine line to ride. I know that we have Mike Kaplan as a mutual friend, and I was able to see him perform a couple weeks ago in Rochester, and he actually stayed with us, which was wonderful. And he actually manages to straddle that line somehow. Like he, he is able to talk about veganism on stage without undermining the reasons why we shouldn't eat animals. Like he somehow manages to not sound self-righteous and to make people laugh, but like not in a laughing at him kind of way. I think that what you just talked about, it sounds like it accomplishes the exact same thing, but like in general, how can we not appear to be self-righteous when we're right? (laughs) It's an impossible paradox. And yes, we love Mike Kaplan. Let's take a moment to celebrate how great he is. And I know he's a, he's a repeat guest on here. A thing I also admire about what Mike does is that he doesn't throw himself under the bus too much. I've seen people be like, I'm a vegan, so now you all hate me, you know, except in joke form. But like, you can see them just abasing themselves before the crowd in an attempt to talk about something that they want to talk about. And I really admire and aspire to when people don't sell out the philosophy super hard while they're, while they're broaching the topic, just because we all are conditioned to know like vegans are bad. They're a safe target to make fun of. I feel like it's like a hacky topic. Like remember when it was okay to just be like, Canada sucks. It was like brought to us by South Park. I think vegans are like that too. It's just like, this is the safe kind of target to hate to shit on. And so, yeah, I mean, it's so cognitively dissonant to move through the world and be like, let me put it this way. I feel much more of a connection to someone like their stock instantly jumps a bunch of percentage points with me when I find out that they're vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's impossible to wrap my mind around not doing it. So you gave us a little glimpse into your timeline. Actually, we're the same age. Well, I'll be 43 this year, but we'll be 42 at the same time for like four months. And we should definitely 
talk about being 42 together during those four months. But <laughs> I'm gonna need a I'm gonna need an experienced guide to that year of life. So I kept it warm for you. Um, <laughs> so it's like we've I don't know if you drink or not, but I am okay, good, because now you're twice the age of a legal drinker, so you could have twice as much. I think I think that's how it works. And yet I, I find that um, nowadays I get buzzed on half as much. So I don't know what yes. math is going on there, but. I was a theater major, so don't trust me for math. In fact, forget <laughs> everything I've said up until this point. But we have been vegan for about the same amount of time also when you were saying your timeline, leading me to believe we are related. But that being said, even though we're obviously siblings, I'm wondering if in the 20 years or so since you've been vegan, you have felt any shift in attitudes. Are people less judgmental than they used to be when you talk about it? That's such a great question. And I will also say that I, up until this podcast, believed myself to be an only child. So I'm really looking forward to the experience of having a sibling. And I appreciate you expanding my life in that way. <laughs> I would say I'm kind of spitballing here. So let's see how it feels after I say this. I feel like as veganism has moved more into the mainstream over the past two decades, and there's like more products available, and there's impossible meat now, and we all have some vague sense that raising beef and, and pork like contributes to climate change. It's just less weird and fringe seeming. And then at the same time, I think that that has made it a bigger target. And so I would say as it's become more accepted, there also seems to be like a proportional amount of like, again, these are people it's okay to shit on because they're take they're choosing to take like a very strong ethical stance and to align their behaviors accordingly. And maybe this is a self-serving interpretation of that, but I think people are threatened by people because I think everybody knows at a deep level that like, this does not work, and that you are literally torturing an animal who we all love when we're kids. We know that instinctively, that like animals are good, our toys, our books, everything. So I think it's just like a threat to the philosophy and the operating system, and people react defensively, is my diagnosis. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. We have a segment on our hen house called Rising Anxieties, where we report on what the opposition is saying about vegans. And it almost requires no commentary because it's so ludicrous. Just the headlines alone uh, talk about comedy. I mean, it's hilarious. So I agree that as veganism is becoming more and more in the mainstream, the rising anxieties is also swelling a bit. But I think we're like almost at the tipping point. Like I think we're almost at the point where people at least won't be hostile about it. Like maybe they won't necessarily go fully vegan, but it'll just be like, oh yeah, cool, cool. Like I used to, it used to be that you have a gay cousin and now it's that you have a vegan cousin. <laughs> and soon it'll be like, it's not your cousin, but it's your kid or your parent. And then it's you. So Basically, everyone's going to be a gay vegan is the moral of this. Jasmine, you're, so, you're um, so far ahead of the curve. I mean, you're going to be decades in. You'll be role modeling for everybody. That's my goal. Thank you. Switching gears just a little bit. I've been dying to ask you this question, Zach. Tell us about the Brutus saga. <laughs> 
I love talking about it, and it's kind of from another phase of my creative life, so I, I, I welcome this question. I had a friend who was teaching at a boarding school in rural New Mexico, and I went to visit him at the... I live in LA. I went to visit him at the school where he was teaching, and they have like a farm And I went down and I got a little tour of it and I like met some dogs. And then we went into a barn that they have. And there were no animals in the barn except for one duck. And I said, what is the deal with this duck? And they said, well, that's Brutus. That's the name. He's he's Brutus. And I said, wow, what is his story? And the guy who ran the farm said, so we used to have a bunch of chickens and other like fowl here. And there's some wild dogs that live in the hills and they like raided the barn and they got all of them except for Brutus. He's the only one who survived. So maybe I should have trigger warning that story. But he said, I said, wow, that's incredible. Like what's going to happen with him? And he said, oh, we're going to, we're going to eat him. Like that's what we do with these, with the animals here. And I just, every fiber of my body rebelled like as str- I thought this cannot happen. Like it's it's enough that it happens all the time. But to actually put a face to this purported meal of an animal and after hearing his story. So I just switched into like get it done mode, Jasmine. Like I just operationalized. And so I started, went back to LA. I said, please let me try and find a home for him. So I called all these shelters. They kept putting me in touch with the next person and the next person and the next person. None of it was working out. Eventually, I just like on a on a whim did something I should have done at the beginning and tried to shelter in, in New Mexico, not far from where the bird was, called Kindred Spirits. And the operator of it was like, yes, you can bring him here if you can get him here. And so I persuaded a guy at the school to crate him up and bring him there. And things were really like dragging their heels. I was really worried as to whether or not it was going to work out. And then one day I just got a text from the the woman who operates Kindred Spirits, the shelter in New Mexico. And it just said, duck delivered. Wow. And so Brutus passed away in 2020, but he lived the rest of his life at that shelter getting you know, the like a macrobiotic diet and a safe, protected exercise space and the company of other ducks, which I learned is like really important. They're, they're social creatures and being alone must not have been great for him. But so he kind of hit the jackpot after a pretty traumatic like middle part of his life. And I actually got to go visit him there while he was still alive. And I got to see him being a duck in a protected sanctuary space, but um, he was doing his duck things. It was like, you know, I hope this is an okay place to say that it verged on the sacred for me. I was like, I just want to help this guy. And so there were so many weird twists and turns along the way that I wrote a trilogy of raps about it because I am a comedy rapper. Perhaps that'll be in the intro, but I wrote these three raps about the whole experience and all the characters and twists and turns along the way and made music videos for them. And they're on YouTube. And there's a lot of stuff in there that's like poetic license, but the bones of the story and as many details as possible are as accurate as I could report them. Wow. that That's a really powerful story. I'd love for our audience to hear it. Can we play part one? Yes. 
Here's the plan today. I'm going to tell a tale in an expansive way. Three parts. But before we start, I'm going to bow my head and fold my hands and pray. Grant I may share my narrative as well as I can relay an anecdote. Help me spread my wings like a manta ray. As Superman would say, up, up, and away. Okay, my friend teaches at a boarding school about an hour out of Santa Fe. I went to see him there, and on the final day of my campus stay, he suggested visiting the farm to see the animals they had living in the barn. This guy, Nate, provided a guided tour. He said, these are our new chickens. I asked about the previous batch of birds. He said, there are these wild dogs living in the hills, and they raided the farm, and every last feathered hen was massacred by those blasted curs. A bloodbath occurred. It was nasty and brutish. We moved on to the next stall, Nate pointed, and he said, that is Brutus. I looked, there was a duck. He was sitting on the floor, dirt packed and dusty. Nate said, he's the only survivor of the dog attack. Yup, miraculously, not a single hair on him was harmed. That's not the miracle, ducks don't have hair. But what this duck did have was balls, a gigantic iron-clad pair. Nate said, he'll be dead soon though. I asked why. The duck just sat there and Nate goes, oh, we're gonna cook him and eat him. What? How is that fair? Fate had spared this lucky duck. If he were human instead of a creature, he'd become a national hero. Or at least a motivational speaker. Or a preacher who believed fervently the eternal had called upon him to serve a holy purpose. But all the duck was gonna be served was all orange. Brutus, named for a traitor whose heart was impure and scheming, bruh. But now he was being betrayed by his human caretakers. That's so ironic it could cure a me, me up. I felt like screaming, ugh. But then I had a thought, kerpow, a light bulb flash, an idea. Nate, I said, could I sponsor this waterfowl? Could I donate some dough in exchange for you keeping and lodging and feeding the duck? Nate said he'd check with the farm director, but was certain that some agreement could be struck. Well, yay. So on my way back to L.A., I gave the situation some consideration and decided to insist on making a deal with three stipulations. One. Brutus could never be slaughtered. He'd live in the barn till he died of old age. Two, each week they'd have to send me a photo of somebody holding a page of that day's paper up next to his face so I'd know that he hadn't been whacked. Curtain. And three, I can't resist closing on a pun. They'd have to change his name to Quack Sherwin. So I'm patting myself on the back, smoking, thinking how humanitarian of you. I even regaled a friend that I ran into with all the details of all that I planned to do. But he emailed me the next day and he wrote quote I think that duck having to live until the end of its natural life with no other ducks around is going to be rough so I googled it and sure enough ducks get dejected unless there's a friend next step was to send a request to protect and defend him from harm to the farm director Ben I wrote I hope I'm not too late but I want to save that duck at the farm from becoming a meal ideally I'd arrange to take it somewhere where it can live around water and other ducks he replied hi Zach Thanks for your note. I have called all of the farm sanctuaries in our area. None of them will take a male duck because they are so aggressive. The reason he was confined in the first place was because he was beating up our chickens. You are welcome to see if you can find someone willing to come and get him. We have fed him a long time and he's had a decent life with us until recently. We plan to slaughter him soon and eat him unless other arrangements can be made shortly. Thanks. 
be. I had to move quick, be a swift arranger. Brutus was in the grip of danger. And don't be miffed or angered or flip the finger, but I'm stopping here on a cliffhanger. To be continued. Sorry to end on a cliffhanger, but <laughs> I i mean, so you said people can hear the rest on YouTube. We'll also link to it in the show notes. I love that story. It can be so powerful when we have direct communication and a direct role in saving an animal. And I just... I wish that everyone had that happen, vegan or not, because it does change you. But that being said, let's talk about cognitive dissonance because I do know a lot of people who maybe they saw a pigeon on the side of the street who was injured and they took care of that pigeon or maybe they even helped to rescue a farmed animal and yet they don't stop eating meat. So I'm going to ask you the big giant question, why? Why do people still eat animals? Man, I feel like the answer feels so wide-ranging. I mean, it must be tied up with all these forces in our, these powerful structural forces in our society. Like, it must pertain to capitalism. It's intersectional with, like, with white supremacy. I think there's, like... I mean, I just, the industry is so powerful that they have been able to shape this narrative just kind of ambiently again in society that like, this is what is done. Beef is what's for dinner. I mean, got milk. Like these phrases are iconic and totemic. And so I think it just has to do with people wanting to exploit our taste buds in the same way maybe, now I'm really spitballing, but that social media like gobbles our attention in the name of making a buck. And these creatures who are unable to advocate for themselves besides existing and being the powerful entities that they are, they're defense, you know, they can't speak up against it. So it's just so counter-normative, unfortunately. It feels like it must be systemic because any individual Except um, unless like you're, you know, you have some disordered thinking or you are truly a cruel person. Like we like dogs. We think cats are cute. We have pets. And yet so many people can't put the, like connect the last two inches of the bridge. Yes. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we've been doing this podcast for so long and we focus on activism usually, but I do like to kind of go back to that question sometimes because I think that as society shifts, the answer to that question shifts also. I just mentioned activism and I wouldn't necessarily describe you as an activist, but my favorite part of our hen house is when we get to interview people in the performing arts of in any capacity, whether they're a photographer or a comedian or an actor or a musician or you name it, who are bringing their ethos of advocacy for marginalized communities to their work. Am I on the right track here? Like, is that how you would describe yourself? I don't lead with my activist stuff, but since... 2016 and really 2017, I have been active with an LA-based white anti-racist group called White People for Black Lives. I'm pretty active with them. After we record this podcast, I'm going to scoot out the door to an action, in fact. So that's been a part of my life that I've really tried to invest more in over the past five years or so. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's an actor, and 
has reached that degree of success and notoriety that a lot of actors want to reach. And she was saying that she feels like her activism is to just basically be a vegan person and be known for being a vegan person and not necessarily showing up to all the marches anymore because I think she's starting to feel like maybe that wasn't the same energy as she wants to exhibit in the world. So I love that you're going on stage as a vegan. I love that you have this duck story. I love that (laughs) you are working on anti-racism. I lived in LA until last year and I am very familiar with that group. And I think that that is incredible. I just want to go back to the duck for one second because I didn't ask you this and I am curious what your thoughts are. Do you feel that telling the story of one individual animal is more effective than telling people about the billions of animals who are suffering and dying. And I say this knowing that that's not what you do, but I am curious for people who are listening to this who identify as advocates or activists who might have that one story. I'm just wondering your thoughts about talking about an individual. (sighs) Man. Jasmine, your questions are great because my mind is like flooded with different tributaries that I want to follow. Okay, so to try and focus into it, I don't think I had ever considered the binary of telling the story of one animal versus speaking to the situation or the problem or the genocide or whatever as a whole. But let me put it like this. I have never been inspired to write a rap that's like, being vegan generally is good. And I had a very clear gut sense of the direction that this trilogy of raps could go. Like, I'd never written a three-part music cycle or song cycle or whatever before. So this was like an outlier of an experience for me. And I mean, the lyrics of the first part of the song are me sort of reckoning with the fact that I'm going to do a different thing in, in these next couple of songs. Anyways, so I guess my answer to your question is like, I found that like being able to talk about this really striking experience that did sort of relate to one animal was my way into tackling a topic that's really big and really important to me, but like kind of overwhelming to figure out like, how do you start climbing this mountain? Like, where do you put your toe and hand in for the first time? And just to circle back to what we were just talking about, I haven't yet found a way to bring like another big part of who I've become as an adult, which is which is this anti-racist work, into my material. That seems really, I will tread very lightly if I ever do go there, of talking about white anti-racism in like a comedy space. Like if I figure it out, I'll go for it full-throatedly, but it just seems, that one seems really tough. But I have been finding, I've been doing my damnedest to like find ways to just say to people at shows, like just to mention like the the crossword show, which is the the big creative project I'm involved with nowadays. We just have one moment in every, every show, which is like a big comedy music wordplay kind of thing to say like, sometimes I literally say this and sometimes I just imply it, but to say, this is a luxury to like do this wordplay stuff, but there's also stuff going on that's like infinitely more important. And so just a heads up that we'll be like making a, we always say, we tell crowds that we make like a small but significant donation from our ticket and merch proceeds to, and then we'll like name an organization that's relevant to some content in the show. And I feel it's important to not let a show and a crowd go by without being like, it's fun to goof around. 
and we need distraction and, and, and life is so heavy. So there needs to be some lightness, but we also can't be oblivious or like look the other way to how much is really on fire. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said that I appreciate. And I do realize I'm asking you these enormous questions and I appreciate that you're just going with it because when I have a performer on, I am curious about some of their thousand foot high views of things as opposed to if I have like someone on who's working on a particular campaign, we might just dig into that campaign. But you get the joy of being able to talk about all of it. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And yeah. now you just mentioned the Crossword Show. So I know that much of your work doesn't involve animal rights at all, but I am very eager to hear more about the Crossword Show. So can you tell us more about it? Yeah, it's my favorite thing to talk about. I don't know if you can hear my the smile in my <laughs> voice. Um, and, and by the way, it is brimming with animal content. It's not explicitly animal rights. All the time, though it is often, but I really, it's like my partner, she is vegan and she was vegan before we met. And what seemed like a luxury, I now realize is a necessity. She's the first vegan I've like been in a serious relationship with. And, you know, I hope we'll be together forever, but life is weird and things happen. But I think I'll never date somebody again who isn't vegan. And Similarly, I feel like my comedy just needs to be more and more like I am. And so it would be weird to do a whole show where animal rights and veganism and just reminding people how how weird this is that they do this in subtle and not so subtle ways is really important. So um, with that out of the way, the Crossword Show is like my magnum opus. It feels to me like the culmination of all these things that I'd been doing throughout my performance career namely comedy and comedy music, specifically rap and wordplay and kind of like trivia and like quirky esoterica and just weird facts and also hosting. I feel like some part of me is like a camp counselor or literally a former bar mitzvah tutor. Like I like to take info and deliver it in a fun way. So a few years ago, someone reached out to me on Twitter and was like, hey, you tweet wordplay stuff like with what seems like a near obsessiveness. I make crossword puzzles like, do you want to try and collaborate on something? In retrospect, I, I recognize that I viewed this reach out with some irritation. And I like to recast that, like, who is this rando reaching out with this like bizarre left field request? But in retrospect, the story I tell myself about it is that it was me sensing that a big new chapter was about to begin and that it was going to be a tremendous amount of work. But boy, has it been worth it. So what it, it eventually wound up being is that the way the show works is I've written six of them so far, or I'm midway through writing number six. Each one, I collaborate with a different crossword puzzle maker. You know, I always choose New York Times published people because their brand is so prestigious. More to say about that if we get there. But these people make a different grid. I write the clues and they work like normal crossword puzzle clues, except they also work like rhyming rap lyrics. So there's like an across clue rap and a down clue rap. And then a panel of guests kind of like wait, wait, don't tell me style works their way through the crossword. And then every time they get a word right, I do some comedy inspired by that word. And we go down a little rabbit hole. And then at the end, there's like a grand finale rap with uh, all the answer words that they figured out from the puzzle weaved together in some clever way. Oh my God. That is... 
That is so cool. I know that you've also had some like really prominent vegans on, which is another sort of uh, another sort of layer there. So, do you want to talk about that briefly? Feel free to name name drop. Let's drop names. Well, the two biggies. Well, so like River Butcher has done the show. uh, The comedian River Butcher has done the show a couple times, and he's been vegetarian. I think. I think he's like a gold star vegetarian. Like has never eaten meat, was raised without it, and then kept it going in adulthood. Wow, I didn't know that. I, I totally follow his work, and I I didn't realize that. That's so exciting. <laughs> I believe, I, I, I'm 99.9% on that. And maybe, he, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that's all I know. But I do I do feel like I know that. Mayim Bialik, uh, did, so most of our guests are comedians because they're so funny. But we also really like having people who aren't on if the, if it's the right fit. And uh, Mayim Bialik is a friend of a friend and we had her on and she's so smart and so crossword puzzly. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes I'll have guest solvers like calling me out for like clues that they don't think are up to snuff. And Mayim <laughs> was totally busting my balls on stage and was like, would that clue get published? Like, are you sure about that? Oh my God. That's so amazing. So the, I interviewed her couple times and the first time I interviewed her I like couldn't speak because I, <laughs> I, I I never which is bad for an interviewer by the way I I almost never get you know like tongue-tied when I'm interviewing people I don't really notice it very much if someone's extremely famous I don't really care but it was blossom you I know, know. And, and we're right in the pocket Exactly. Exactly. It was so I like, I feel like my heart is racing a little bit even right now. So anyway, (laughs) go ahead. I just wanted to nerd out for a moment that I love her. No, that's great. She's, she's great. And she was so good on our show. I just want to make the show be like beautifully presented. So like, I want the venues to be nice. I want to be really prepared for the material. And I think having guests who are like, exciting is great whenever I can do it. So, and then sort of the big name who, uh, we don't put it on our publicity because it was sort of in an unusual private show kind of context, but I'm happy to talk about it here. We had someone who loves our show hire us to do like a birthday party for her, like perform the show for her birthday party. And she was one of the guests. And then she's really good friends with Natalie Portman. And so uh, I got to have Natalie on stage as a guest solver, which was she is by far the most famous person that we've had on the show. And not coincidentally, she's like a joy. She was great. She totally played the game. She was a super good sport. And yeah, you know, in LA, it's like when someone really, really famous is in the room, like everybody's doing a good job keeping it together. But I was definitely like turning off part of my mind and being like, it's just another guest panel. You got it. Still do the comedy. Still make the jokes when you see the opportunities. That's awesome. I would have been like, I would have fainted. But I was actually, when I was a child, I went to this performing arts sleepaway camp called Stage Door Manor. Oh, yeah. And do you know Stage Door? <laughs> have oh. you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Natalie Portman, I mean, everyone was there. Who Everyone's kid was there. Everyone was there who was famous. And Natalie, who's younger than us, but she was there at the same time as I was. So we were in the same like tap dance class, which is, a very funny, like, I don't know. It's just funny to like know someone sort of when they're a child and then see that they've become crazy famous. But anyway, that's so amazing. I love, I love your brain. And it's so weird. Like your brain, like, <laughs> I mean, but the fact that you, 
actually got a crossword puzzle published in the New York Times. Is that right? Was that like yeah. the biggest thing in the entire world that's ever happened to anybody? Because it sounds <laughs> like it. Yeah. So the story with that is this show has just been such an adventure. And by the way, thank you for the compliment you paid me. Weird brain is like, I mean, that's all I want is just people to be like, I appreciate your weird brain. It's so gratifying. And it it really satiates my bottomless performer's ego. <laughs> I have no memories of my grandmother earlier than her doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Like iconic grandma. Um, the one who was a vegetarian forever. My God, Jasmine, it all ties together. She used to just, I was just like indelibly associated with her sitting at her kitchen table doing the puzzle. So decades go by, I make up the crossword show. And then there's a woman in the Bay Area whose name is Andrea Carla Michaels. And she has, I think, she's constructed like almost 100 puzzles for the New York Times. Constructed, by the way, a a verb that's now familiar to me, but I should pause and say, that's like the specific term of art in crossword world for making a puzzle, constructing. So Andrea, we've done a bunch of shows in the Bay Area, and Andrea is a friend and a fan, and she reached out um, and said, hey, like, could we collaborate on a puzzle? I'll do a lot of the like heavy lifting, and we'll just like check in about it and... The idea for the theme for the puzzle that she had came from one of my videos. So she was like, I'll like build the grid and we'll use your wordplay idea and I think we can get it published. So we submitted it, they accepted it. And then like the pipeline is so long at the New York Times that it took like a year and a half for it to get published. But in February, the puzzle did come out. And I, the ways in which it's most meaningful to me are like, it's just so legitimizing to be the host of a crossword show and now have my name on the byline of a of a puzzle in the New York Times. But also, honestly, the thing that means the most to me is like so few of my show business accomplishments are the thing that my grandmother knew or would even have a shot at knowing. And this one would have just been like, she died before I got published. But it still made me feel like she would have loved this. She would have been so excited. So yeah, that's that's as meaningful as anything. All right. I have a couple of questions about your grandma. <laughs> so my grandmother was my most important person in my life and also was the person with the crossword puzzle at our kitchen table. And my grandmother went vegan when she was 86. Um, Whoa. Yeah, there's actually, if people are interested, people listening to this, she wrote an essay called It's Never Too Late to Go Vegan. And if you look for it on our Hen House's website, we published it. Her name was Sherry Glickman. So why was your grandmother vegetarian? Like, was it for ethical reasons? I think so. I think she was grossed out by the concept of eating meat. Yeah. And where did you grow up? She and I both grew up in... Cleveland, Ohio, though I moved away when I was like a teenager for family career reasons. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, but she wasn't around to see the New York Times puzzle, but I I love when things happen to us after these like iconic matriarchs are no longer with us and we are able to sort of still tap into their energy when they happen. Like that is one of my favorite parts about continuing to be a creative person is like, I know what my grandma would have thought of this thing and that thing. So I'm an atheist, so I don't want to get too woo here. But <laughs> I, I will say I sort of think that it, she is still with you. And I'm sure that she's like in some capacity, whether it's the legacy that she left or whatever was is proud of you. And I love that I'm I'm cavelling. 
Did you frame it? Did you frame the crossword puzzle? I didn't, but I had I had hard copies sent to some key people, including two of my grandma's kids, my mom and my uncle. And I feel like atheists are like the safest people to woo out a little bit because you have it baked in from the beginning. Like, and this isn't about some magical right. <laughs> god thing. But it just is like for the rest of my life, it'll be like a connection to my grandma or at least for the duration of this show, it'll be like such a concrete connection to her even though she died years ago. And actually the way that it makes me think about it to go woo myself for a little is like, looking back at all the countless times that I was like around her when she was doing the puzzle and just being like, you were setting it up. Like this was the long payoff of being from this family of crossword people. So yeah, I think it's very moving. I mean, it makes me feel emotional as we talk about it. And also I'm an editor, so I'm sort of imagining your memoir and I'm sort of imagining like the end point is maybe the first memory of watching grandma do the crossword puzzle. And you know how like you sort of want to then end with the same point. Like you're, the end point is maybe opening the New York Times and there's yours. I don't know. But yep, we call anyway. it back. Yeah, that's perfect. Yes. That's perfect. Yeah, I love it. Cool. Call your agent. Tell them. <laughs> tell them you have a great idea. All right. So I just have a couple more questions for you, even though I feel like I could talk to you forever. Uh, Same. So, this is such an enjoyable conversation. I, it's because we're like long lost siblings who just yeah, found each other. Obvi. That, yeah, obvi. So you're about to go on tour. Tell us all about it. It was such an exciting time. So the first Crossword show ever was in November of 2018. And then my 2019, I have never had a year like this. I was blasting material out. We were doing shows monthly in LA. It was like becoming a thing. Different celebrities would just be there every month at the show. It was like a joke with me and my co-producer that like the house manager would pop their head backstage and be like, Kira Sedgwick is here. Moby's here. Nice vegan name. So um, we had that a bunch of times. It was so exciting. Forgive the the shameless name dropping, but uh, it just was like... Well, I, I, I just hope Moby wasn't there at the same day as Natalie. Okay, go ahead. Uh, no comment on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, let me think of... I'll, I'll try and think of a different celebrity for the next time I tell that story. Anyway, <laughs> um, it was just an exciting thing and it felt like there was all this energy so then we went on tour in early 2020 and we sold out all the venues that we'd been in the last time we were around. And we were like on the East Coast. And we were like, this is it. Like, it's time to step up. Like next time we come through, we need to book bigger places because it's like building. And then that tour ended on um, March 6th of 2020. So everybody had their own version of the pandemic completely changing momentum and direction. And we certainly had our version of it. So this tour that we're doing next month is like us dipping our toe back and coming back to the East Coast, definitely with some humility being like, we sure hope we can still have good showings at the venues that we did. But we're really excited. I, I spent the pandemic writing a fifth crossword show. It is it is like the biggest and most ambitious of any of the ones that I've written so far. And I'm really excited to do it. It's kind of about the experience of creating a major, like one piece of major creative output during the pandemic. And I'm just excited. So yeah, so we're doing a, it's just over a week of shows on the East Coast, like in New England to tune up a bit in some small cities like Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Brunswick, Maine. And then we're doing one show in Boston at our favorite venue, um, the WBUR City Space, which is just like state of the art tech. 
Our show has a slide show that's a big part of it. And so it's awesome to perform there. And then we're doing two shows in New York City and one show in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of DC. So yeah, that's that's the tour story. And we will definitely put information about that in the show notes. That is so exciting. I definitely want to see this live at some point soon. So I will keep a close eye uh, on the dates that and the locations. that Lifetime guest list, fam. Oh, yes! Now that we're related, Good. just speak the word and uh, you, you're, you're VIP. Perma VIP. I mean, okay, thank you! I'm totally going to cash in on that. I'm so excited. That's the best, <laughs> thing that, the best perk I've gotten except for the little... <laughs> Except for the little dog purse that my Chihuahua is currently in right now. Other than oh that, my God. the Send VIP picks. thing. Yeah, it's pretty great. All right. Well, I'm hoping you'll stay on for the bonus segment so I could talk a little bit more about your weird brain. But I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out today. And before you leave, can you tell our listeners how they can find you online, follow your work and support you? Yes, absolutely. And I'll say in the spirit of bringing it back around to where it was at the beginning, it's so nice to get to say some of the stuff that I said. I had to be a little bit brave to say some of it. And like, it is a, it's downright therapeutic to not have to just sort of like quietly roll my eyes all the time at people I love, like (laughs) ordering lamb in restaurants. It's just really like what a, it's an incredible thing that you provide by, by uh, making room for these conversations. My social media stuff is all Zach Sherwin at Zach Sherwin um, with a C-H, Zach with a C-H. And I would really direct people to the Crossword Show website, which is just www.crosswordshow.com. Or as we like to say at our shows when we put up a slide of the URL, www.crosswordshow.com. So, uh, (laughs) but all our tour dates are there and like (laughs) pictures of people we've had on the show and information about what it is and our email list and how to book us and all that stuff. Crosswordshow.com. Oh my God. The crosswords how. It's like kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> I'm, sta- I'm like staring at your bio while you're saying that. And like, it, it just was like, why does it say cross crosswords how instead of crossword show? I'm confused. <laughs> but, oh my God. That's so, fam- so fabulous. All right. Well, Zach with an H as a Jasmine, no E. Oh. I totally feel that pain. Where you gotta get both email addresses, by the way. Like if you're Zach at mm. something, you gotta tell your web person to get the K one too, because you're missing emails. That's my advice to you as an older person who's like four months older than you. Now I Wow. Have... Yeah, you're welcome. That's some of that so, secret wisdom they share on your forty second birthday, obviously. Exactly. Thank you for breaking the taboo. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Stick around for bonus and definitely come back sometime soon and talk to us about what you've been up to. Thank you, Jasmine. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock first Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. 
So if you're a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from Corporate Nights. It's by Jessica Scott-Reed, who is a terrific reporter, reporting on, frequently on the meat industry, and and she's Canada-based. And the title of this article is How Big Meat is Impeding Plant-Based Products. So she is reporting on some anxiety-rising phenomenon, and I'm reporting on her reporting. And she points out that it's something that we all know that meat companies around the world have been making headlines for their ventures into the world of plant-based protein. She talks about Brazil's JBS, which is, of course, the largest meat company in the world. Cargill, Tyson, they, they've all got their products out. But if you look a little deeper, at the same time that they're introducing these products, they're undermining the growth of the the very world that they pretend to be dabbling in. She's talking about the the labeling laws, like the one in Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, preventing uh, the the use of, you know, meat-relevant words to describe products, even though they're clearly labeled as plant-based. She's talking about a, a law that was introduced. It hasn't passed, but it was introduced. The Real Marketing Edible Artificials Truthfully, i.e. Meat Act, which received um, significant funding from the meat industry, which would have, uh, you know, taken this labeling contest to the federal level, which, you know, that could still happen, no doubt about it. And she adds that the government uh, is is enthusiastically participating. In February of this year, the U.S. Senate confirmed a new commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, Robert Califf, who during his nomination hearing was asked about plant-based alternatives using dairy terms. He responded, There is almost nothing more fundamental about safety than people understanding exactly what they're ingesting. Oh, yeah, that's really what you believe, Robert. You really think the people eating most of the foods marketed in this country understand what's in it? Anyway, she points out that the dairy industry was extremely enthusiastic about his appointment. Um, And then there was an NYU study that found that 10 major meat and dairy companies engaged in research that minimizes the link between animal agriculture and climate change. And Tyson, Cargill, and Smithfield went further, supporting counter-movement organizations or similar groups that play down the link between agriculture and climate change. This is a huge issue. The the ability of corporate America to own research uh, and and to get their like nonsensical studies out there supporting their positions is is a huge problem. And we see this happening over and over, particularly on the climate issue. And as Matthew Hayek, who who is a professor at of environmental science at NYU, points out, they just weaponize this research, and you know they, the researchers are funded by the meat, dairy, and egg industries. Their their findings are suspect. They can bury findings that they're not pleased with, and they're either funding research directly or funding researchers who are sympathetic to industry aims or are antagonistic toward messages that defy industry interests like reducing meat consumption. The point here is, you know, don't trust them. (laughs) Like like you didn't know that. Just because they're putting these products out doesn't mean they're not trying to kill the industry. All right. On a little different topic, this is from Chris Friend. Lions, tigers, and dolphins. Oh my, zoos and aquariums aren't cruel. This is from the Delco Times, and it is really one stupid article. So I thought you'd enjoy hearing about it. 
Earlier this month, he points out, or she points out, a dolphin turned on its trainer at the Miami Aquarium. It was a harrowing experience, but fortunately, both are reportedly doing well. Chris goes on to point out that this is meaningless in, in, even though animal rights activists claim that this showed that there's problems at the Miami Aquarium. And believe me, there are problems at the Miami Aquarium. And renewed their call that no animals should be kept in captivity. They, as, as Chris points out, completely missed the point. There had been an unexpected collision between the dolphin and the quote unquote trainer. Hate that word. I just hate that word. Trainer. I'm a trainer. Uh, I, sorry, I digress. Uh, and then very, this is, this happens very rarely out of the more than 2000 dolphins in captivity worldwide. Isn't that a tragic figure? Very few exhibit violent or aggressive behavior. Oh, well, you know, as long as it doesn't happen often, it's all fine. Um, that Sundance, the dolphin was old. So maybe he was simply grumpy and dealing with effects of old age. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty old. And so if I meet you, Chris, I might be <laughs> getting grumpy and we might have a clue. Oh, I guess I shouldn't make threats. But it shouldn't come as a surprise, Chris says, that some are calling for extreme measures. That would be us. But this would be just such a mistake. One example that he points to is that there were two stories in the news recently, tigers having been killed by traps in Indonesia and an elephant having been killed by a trophy hunter in Botswana. And according to Chris, not all that long ago, Many would have reacted to such events with a nonchalant shrug. It seems to me that plenty of people still react to such events with a nonchalant shrug. But anyway, but, and here we make the very, very logical leap. Because we have come to know these types of animals, courtesy of fact-filled interactive exhibits in zoos and circus demonstrations, both of which humanize the animals and increase our infinity for them, there has been an outpouring of concern and empathy. Well, you know, I have a lot of concern and empathy for these animals, and I sure ain't been in a zoo in a long time or seen any quote-unquote interactive exhibits. And if we take away the special bond, which Chris believes uh, is formed in zoos, demands for animal welfare will dramatically wane. Are you kidding? Like, where do you get this stuff? Like, you want to do a study or something? All of the studies have shown that the people walking around zoos, especially kids walking around zoos, you know, they, they're really not that interested in the animals. Where will it end if dolphins should be freed from captivity? Then by definition, so should every whale, seal, sea lion, and fish. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it won't stop there. What about safari attractions in America? Well, there's that would be a huge loss, wouldn't it? But then also, there'll be no animal research. Another really large leap, though, you know, one I'm kind of on board with. They talk about the indescribable experiences of swimming with trained dolphins in Curacao. And because the dolphins had the opportunity to leave and didn't, that proves to Chris that, that they're totally happy. Yeah. Oh, here's a good logical leap too. SeaWorld opened in 1964. And it's no coincidence that a moratorium on whaling was instituted in 1986. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm sure that the opening of SeaWorld led directly to the moratorium on whaling. We thank you, SeaWorld, as do the whales, according to Chris. Yeah. I'm sure that the whales are forever grateful for being imprisoned in SeaWorld. Well, I could go on and on. This is a long article, but I, I won't subject you to it anymore. I Sustainability talking points in your back pocket. This is the most bullshitty argument. It is from uh, this um, 
Emily Solis, who's the manager of communications and content at the Animal Agriculture Alliance. So you can imagine it's mostly about dairy, but about all of it. Are they, this is this is her idea of of sustainability talking points. Sustainability means meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Okay. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that's it. It's a promise. That's what she says. Sustainability is a continuous journey, not a destination. Uh, yeah. And in, in support of that, she points out that the entire animal agriculture community is committed to continuing efforts, setting new goals and moving toward further progress. Oh, Emily. Animal agriculture accounts for only 4% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Remember talking about the former article I was talking about how cooking the research is really useful? Well, if they are cooking the research about one thing more than anything else, it's about, and cooking the numbers, it's about climate change. I have no idea what the real number is, but aside from the fact that I'm sure that they're undercounting the number, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture, I have no doubt of that. It's also... Important to remember that, like, you can't look at just the U.S. The U.S. is a huge greenhouse gas emitter, but greenhouse gases have a global impact. So, if you only look at the percentage of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, then you're counting it against all of the, you know, the fact that we use like all of these cars and trucks, and we're just a disaster in so many ways. That's the starting point for why this is a stupid number, and I'm sure there are many other reasons as well. 40% of ingredients used in animal feeds are byproducts from other industries. Cattle are great recyclers. This is probably true. There probably are leftover things you mentioned include amentals, canola meal, and citrus pulp. That other uses could be found for these for these products, but you know, I don't know. It's not what I do for a living, so I don't really know. But aside from that, like th this argument is that okay, we can feed animals garbage. It's disgusting. Just disgusting. The U.S. dairy community has committed to becoming greenhouse gas neutral or better by 2050. Well, isn't that just great? I'm so glad to hear about your commitment. Uh, let's like, how about like do it? I, I, since I can't, don't feel I can believe anything you say. Removing dairy from our diets and dairy cattle from U.S. agriculture would only reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 0.7 percent. Yeah, whatever. I don't believe it. Cooked research. The U.S. dairy community supplies the protein requirements of 169 million people. Calcium requirements for 254 million people and energy requirements, energy requirements, that's ominous, that's ominous, energy requirements for 71.2 million people. The fact that, that the U.S. dairy community supplies anything is irrelevant since we could supply it in other ways that would be much less destructive. That's the real point. Yeah, I mean, you can do something incredibly uh, horrible for the environment and produce food out of it, but that doesn't mean that you should continue to produce food in it way that is incredibly horrible. Over 99% of the U.S. milk supply comes from farms participating in the Farm Animal Care Program. All right, we're switching topics here. Now we're getting into animal welfare. And you can just imagine what a load of nonsense that is. Oh, all right. This is from the Center for Consumer Freedom, one of our most amusing commentators. Washed up actor James Cromwell explains deranged vegan milk stunt. At least they know how to write an, uh, an entertaining article over at the Center for Consumer Freedom. Uh, they are, of course, talking about uh, James Cromwell's um, stunt at uh, a Starbucks where he glued his hand to the counter in order to protest the upcharge for vegan milks and got press everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So I'm sure it's driving them crazy. It turned out to be a huge story. 
I glued my hand to a Starbucks counter. Here's why. That was the title of, of um, James Cromwell's article. This article goes on to say, quote, this is not the title of a five-year-old's kindergarten memoir, but rather it is the title of a Washington Post op-ed from the 82-year-old actor. Oh, I didn't know he was 82. He looks great. 82-year-old actor James Cromwell. Um, because, of course, he wants vegan milk alternatives to be priced the same as real milk, as, as of course they call it. Conveniently, Cromwell left out the fact this is my favorite. This is listen to this one. Left out the fact that increased demand for milk alternatives such as almond milk has been cited as a main driver of California's droughts or that it is a major threat to the bee population. Well, I agree that almond milk is one of the least environmentally friendly of the plant-based milks. I think that's true. Compared to dairy, <laughs> it's not even. I mean to animal-based dairy, it's not even close. It's not even close. Also, personally, it's not my favorite, but I know a, people, a lot of people like it. But they don't have to use almond milk. There's plenty of others. In fact, now I think they like, if you count them all up, there's something like 10 billion different milks out there. But he goes on to say, and even if the environmental benefits were clear, which of course they are, it would make almost no difference in climate change. Here we go. Here we go. Right back to the same point I was making in the last article. If every American went totally vegan, total emissions for the United States would for the United States would only drop 2.6%. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I don't believe your numbers and stop comparing it to the United States. He concludes by by pointing out and this is probably valid that that Starbucks isn't isn't um marking up vegan milk anything more than he's they're marking up everything because they mark up everything a tenfold, uh, but you know, every, like the coffee and whatever else they, they have a tenfold markup. So if the difference between real milk, as they call it, and vegan milk is eight cents, then an 80 cents upcharge is in compliance with their tenfold markup on everything. Starbucks is so expensive, but I know many of you really, really do enjoy it and they are getting unions. So I'm not going to complain, but you know, really who cares? Vegan milk is more expensive than, than, animal-based dairy because of all the subsidies provided to animals-based dairy. But Starbucks can actually still do the right thing. They're they're doing fine. But he points out the fact is, is that Starbucks... Actually, this is a really funny line. He can be very funny. The fact is that Starbucks needs some level of markup to operate its stores, pay staff, and unglue idiots from their countertops. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, fortunately, James Cromwell is so far from an idiot, got great press on this and really excited that this amount of attention is being paid to it. And he points out that if Starbucks does do this, they probably won't drop the price of, of the upcharge. They'll just increase the price of coffee with um, animal-based dairy. And if they do that, you know, it's fine with me. All right. I'm sorry for you guys who like to shop at Starbucks and would like it to be a little cheaper, but like clearly anybody who shops at Starbucks is okay paying a lot of money for coffee. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. 
You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.